I'm Sherry Sylvester, and this is Ninth in Congress. For the last couple of weeks, I've been speaking with people who were there when Texas shifted from blue to red to become the preemptive conservative state in America. Today, I'm speaking with another guy who was in the room when it happened. Mike Basilis, a preeminent pollster not only in Texas, but nationally and the world. Mike Basilis is president and CEO of Basilis and Associates, where he has conducted research on hundreds of issues from taxes and tort reform to gender modification and school choice. He's worked for a number of statewide and legislative candidates, including former Governor Rick Perry and Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, as well as on Republican presidential campaigns. Mike literally wrote the book on what politicos in Texas know as the Orvis, optimal Republican voting strength, to allow House and Senate districts to be compared on an apples-to-apples basis to determine what they believe and how they are likely to vote. Mike is all about the data, and today we're going to talk with him about what he sees in Texas, what is going on nationwide, the trends that turn Texas red, and what he predicts for the future. Mike, welcome to Ninth in Congress. Thanks for having me, Sherry. Great to have you. Well, let's get this out of the way first. You're not a native Texan. No, I'm not. I'm from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. How'd you well, get here? Well, I uh, was raised there. I went to an academic institution known as Drexel University, <laughs> and they had this great co-op program. And through a five-year program, I had four six-month internships, and I did that last one between my fourth and fifth year of this five-year program in Texas. And the reason I chose Texas is my parents had split, and my dad moved to Dallas. And I wanted to see how much I would like Texas. I had only been here for one week a year or two before that. So the summer fall of 82 was life-changing for me. Wow. wow. When I graduated, I came back. Terrific. Terrific. Well, Mike, tell us some basic stuff. I mean, you know, who votes? You know, we have always these polls come out and say, well, this is only registered voters. And this is not likely voters. And who, how, how do we yeah. who votes? Well, there's so much there. Um, you see a lot of polls that are done nationwide and even in some states. And they'll start with a, a list or a sample of adults. And then from there, they'll, they'll move that down to a smaller sample or subsample of voters. And then when we're in the last month of an election, they'll start showing the results of likely voters. And the problem with that is if you base your sample on adult population, you're going to get a different geographic break within each of the counties than if you looked at likely voters. Uh, your urban suburbanites tend to turn out at a little bit higher rates than some of your urban voters. So we have to be mindful of that type of thing. Uh, when, it, when you ask the question, who votes and who participates in polls, they kind of go one and hand in hand with each other because those who are actually showing up to vote We'll participate in surveys. Think of it this way. If you're not registered to vote, you're probably not registered to vote for a reason. Other survey research has shown that those that are not registered to vote don't think their vote matters. Why should I get registered to vote? I don't think my vote matters. They certainly don't want to talk to us about issues because they're not going to go vote anyway for those that work on issues that impact their lives. So when we do a survey, we will find people that generally participate in elections more than not, not just one election, but several elections, primaries and general elections. And so we're fortunate for that because most of the work that I conduct in the political and public affairs arenas 
deal with voters who are actually participating because elected officials want to know. What do those who participate in elections think about? Would you tell your story about the statesman and turnout, the headline? Oh, okay. Um, because you're always asked to predict. I know around right. election time, and you're pretty cautious about making predictions. Well, you know? and I'm okay. Uh, pollsters generally like to make predictions when there's a large turnout. Mm-hmm. We're fine in a gubernatorial election year, such as November of 2022. Presidential year is fine. Special elections, low turnout, uh, they're a little bit harder to put our arms around because, you know, you can have different factors center in. But when you have large turnouts, we know what large turnout elections look like. I received a call from a reporter, the Austin American Statesman, back in 2008. And it was the Friday before the March primary. Mm-hmm. And I was asked what I thought was going to happen on Tuesday in Texas between Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. And I said, I don't know. I said, I'm not polling the Democrats. Um, I have data usually on Republicans. Oh, come on, I need something, the reporter said. Um, I'm, I'm going to print. And I can hear the, the typewriter going, as you did to me years ago. And um, I said, well, you know what? I think this election is going to hinge on who turns out. Oh, that's great. <laughs> what else? Well, um, not only who turns out, but how many of them? Oh, super. Can I quote you on that? Absolutely. It becomes the headline on Sunday morning. I think Rich Apple saw election on Tuesday uh, could hinge on turnout was the stupidest headline he'd ever seen because every election hinges on turnout. And the the paper edition, which I had at the time, I kept, but the electronic edition was changed by about 9.30 that morning. Um, and you, you couldn't find it again. But you've got it. I've got it. I put it in a lot of presentations. That's great. Well, tell us what you know. You've been polling in Texas for, so what, 20 years, 30 years? Um, well, actually, I started in 1989 uh, when I joined the Turns Group mm-hmm. and moved here two years later to Texas. And then for six years, I operated out of their Houston office. And then in 97, I started Bass Lease and Associates. So it's it's we're going into our 35th year next year. Yeah. So that's and, and that's even kind of in the second wave when you think about when Gallup began and and they're the people that made the mistake on Dewey and Truman, right, or whatever. Well, they did that survey about a month out from the election Uh in 1948, which was a big mistake. Uh, They thought things didn't change that much. They learned. They had to keep in mind where, you know, George Gallup was introduced to cross tabulations by another mathematician at Princeton, Albert Einstein, because Gallup went and sat down with Albert Einstein and said, I have all this data about public opinion. He says, well, you should kind of cross it off by like gender and age and region of the country. Oh, wow. <laughs> right? You started looking at data that way. And they, they're collecting data a month out and they thought, and they had an oversample, too many voters from some of the urban suburban areas. It was harder to reach rural Texas or rural anywhere, mm-hmm. rural Arkansas, rural Florida back then. So much that it had an impact on the Terrence organization that they did not um, give up some of their door-to-door interviewing, which they sent people out after 48 because they they had magazine subscriptions, telephones. Not everyone had a telephone. George Gallup Sr. had to be convinced in the early 70s that there was enough penetration with telephones, even in rural parts of the United States, that he could give up the door-to-door. And mm-hmm. he did it somewhat begrudgingly. Mm-hmm. And the 70s and 80s were great for telephone polling. Uh, everyone had a landline. Everyone answered. 
Eventually, we had that thing called call waiting where you could see who was calling. Maybe get a little monitor next to your phone and see the number come up if you didn't want to answer. When I started in the business, there was uh, it took about fifteen dollars to get a completed interview. We were going to about two refusals for every completed interview. Now we get 14, 15 refusals for every completed interview, and it could take 300, $350 to get one interview. Wow. By, by live interviewing, live telephone interviewing. Wow. And, and so you're not do them, doing them all by phone now, right? right well, we're, it's still phone, uh, but we're sending out invitations to your cell phone, and you'll see them come through in the form of an invite. If you're, we like your opinions, if you'd like to participate in this opinion survey, tap this link. Mm-hmm. And they can read the questions. Um, we do, we've been doing this with panelists before that, people that agree to sign up for surveys, uh-huh. usually more for consumer research. But now we're doing it a lot more. Uh, do it 25 to 30% of our interviewing is done that way. What's decreased, as you can imagine, is the participation with landline interviewing. Oh, yeah. We're down to 10 15%. By the end of the decade, there won't be any more landline interviewing being done. Well, what are you finding? I mean, like, what? how does Texas look? What is, I mean, in the last election, uh, 2022, which we remember, uh, Abbott and Patrick won by about a million votes. Is that the general split, Democrat-Republican? Um, well, it depends. The, the million votes depends on what election you're looking at. Right. Because uh, Patrick had a 10-point win over his Democrat opponent. Uh, Abbott was 11 Ken Paxson, with a lot less resources to bear, one by nine. So all about a 10-point advantage in the midterm of a Biden administration. Right, yeah. um, back in uh, 20, Texas was only six points more Republican than Democrat, looking at the Trump vote. Uh, he'd done a nine-point victory, I think, back in 2016. Over the years, there's been a slight fluctuations in the Republican over Democrat advantage. This is a Republican-leading state. It's a red state. If Democrats win a statewide race somewhere in the future, um, they'll say it's a blue state. No, it's not a blue state until you have a majority of the statewide offices and it, probably both the House and the Senate in the state legislature. Mm-hmm. Until that time comes, there's going from red to reddish purple to purple to purplish blue to blue. Mm-hmm. And if you want to look at the country, and there's, we, I have a map on this from a few years ago, the country... Uh, when you look at a presidential race, has red and blue states, depending on who won the state. But if you look at it by county and you look at shades of red to blue, there's a lot of purple in there. Uh, darker purple, lighter purple, lighter blue, and lighter reds. There's a, uh, there's a whole litany of colors there. Uh, but Texas has stayed pretty much about an eight to nine point Republican advantage. What I said back in 2002, when I was asked by reporters what I thought was going to happen in the upcoming statewide elections that featured Rick Perry running for his first term as governor, David Dewhurst running for lieutenant governor, John Cornyn running for U.S. Senate against the Rainbow Coalition that the Democrats had with Ron Kirk, mm-hmm. African-American mayor from Dallas running, Tony Sanchez, Hispanic, Latino running as, as a Democrat nominee for, uh, for governor, was that um, uh, I said, well, I think Republicans are going to win every seat. And reporters would say, well, that almost sounds flippant as if you're just saying that because you're a Republican pollster. And I have to give them something. I said, well, the state pendulum has you know, swung it. it. It it swung from it being a Democrat state to a near break-even state with Republicans breaking in with Kay Bailey Hutchison, for example, winning a treasurer's race in 90 and Rick Perry winning the Ag- agriculture commissioner's race. 
and there was Tom Phillips winning a seat on the state Supreme Court. So Republicans slowly worked their way into winning some of these statewide races, winning more state house seats. And in 2002, not only did Republicans sweep every statewide seat, but they also took control of the state house for the first time right. since Reconstruction. And at that time, I could see that happening because in 98, it was about a five to six point Republican advantage. And Rick Perry won by about two and a half points over John Sharp. Um, and I said to reporters, well, it took a long time for the pendulum to swing from Democrat to Republican. It'll probably swing back if, and I said if, Republicans can't do better than 35% of the Hispanic Latino vote because that's a growing population. And as that community grows, there's going to be more raw, more raw votes and difference in votes that are going to benefit the Hispanic, uh, the Democrats through the Hispanic growing population. Well, what's happened in the last 20 years since 2002? We've gone from about 35% of Hispanics voting Republican to about 43 to 44%. Oh, so hasn't the state become really more Republican? Well, at the same time, urban suburban females, uh, voters 18 to 54 in urban suburban Texas, and independents, particularly independent females, um, have changed their view of the Republican Party. And it's really taken place over the last four to six years, more than it has since 2010. And where there was like a break-even view of urban suburban females of the Republican Party back in 2010, mm -hmm. now it's a good 20 points more negative than it is positive. 20 points. 20 points. That's a lot. Yeah, it's, a, it's been a big shift. So Anglo, um, urban suburban females, uh, uh, Anglos particularly between the ages of 18 and 54, have become less supportive of the Republican Party. Um, they moved, I think it was from about two to one Republican Democrat viewpoint to about split in urban suburban Texas. And that's Dallas, Tarrant, Collin, Montgomery, Harris, Bear County, Travis, Williamson. There's about 13 counties that make up about three out of five voters in the state, a little mm -hmm. over three out of five voters in the state. Anyway, when you look at that vote, Sherry, and, and you study it, you can see while the Republicans have improved their, their share of the vote among the Latino community, they've lost some with the Anglo, younger Anglo community in urban suburban Texas. And it's kind of balanced it out, maintaining this eight, nine point Republican advantage statewide. Uh-huh. Anything happening on the African-American vote? Has there been much Not much there? change there. Not much. Um, you know, you're looking at incremental changes. In, and so uh, not much there. The, uh, the community that's a little bit tougher to gauge um, is the uh, Asian community. They can be split equally Republican-Democrat, and they can move with the political environment. Another thing that has happened over the last two censuses is we're seeing a bigger other mixed race group. Mm -hmm. um, it's uh, there's more mixed races now, and we're that used to be a single digit number down around five six percent, and now we regularly in Texas will get fifteen sixteen seventeen percent of voters saying they're a mixed race. Two hundred and forty three percent increase on the census, and I think we owe that to Ancestry.com mm. and Twenty Three and Me people like you have been going in and, and uh, running their DNA 
And so people see themselves differently and report themselves differently. So it's, it's really yeah. interesting. Well, when, when we were doing in, this, in the shift, as you talk about, 96, 98, 2002, when we got control, were the both parties factioned? Like, I'm, I'm interested if we have a feel uh, for the the uh, I asked you about the Democrat Republican split in Texas. What about the progressive Democrat split? Mm. Is that that's just, that's kind of a relabeling, isn't it? Well, um, when, they're not all of them are not nuts. No, they're not nuts. Well, let's let's look back. Um, or maybe they are. My, my mentor Lance Torrance uh-huh. had four political partisan splits in his polling data mm-hmm. when he came in. 1977 and set up his polling shop in Houston, Texas. And he was working in 78 for Bill Clements and John Tower's reelection. Mm-hmm. And he eventually went to work for uh, uh, officeholders like Trent Lott, senator of Mississippi. And he worked across the South in Alabama and other states. And for him to build a coalition within his surveys of a workable, victorious situation, he had to have Republicans of which he expected 90 to 95% of Republican voters to vote for the Republican nominee for whatever office. Had to get a certain share of independents, usually tried to do better than half of the independent mm-hmm. vote. And then there were two types of Democrats. There were conservative Democrats and there were moderate liberal Democrats. And I looked at a lot of old data that he had. Uh, uh, he had thousands, hundreds of thousands of surveys between 77 and 87. Um, and... I was looking at this data, and I could see at any given time about 27% of Texas was conservative Democrat. Now we're mixing ideology with partisanship. So what are the conservative Democrats today? How's, how many conservative Democrats are left? For the last 15 years, it's been about 8 or 9%. It's been cut in almost to a third of what it was. Where did these almost 20% of conservative Democrats go? A few went to independent, but a lot became Republican. Mm-hmm. So uh, now the term liberal Democrat and being called a liberal has been seen as a no-no. Just like even though the press likes to report school vouchers going on in the special sessions, proponents of vouchers don't like to say vouchers. They have other words, right? Mm-hmm. Education, savings accounts. School uh, choice, parent empowerment. We are A lot of things. Right? Don't say the things. V word. Well, to the, to the liberal Democrats, they don't want to say the L word. Right? It's like, you know, loser, right? Big L. Right? <laughs> Don't say liberal. We'll be progressive. Progre- we're, we're moving forward if we're progressive, aren't well, we? But that's kind of an old communist term, too. We go, there you go. So yeah. It's a play on words. If the, if the shoe fits. Well, let me just digress here a little bit. I noticed a piece in terms of thinking about the old Democrats, and we were talking earlier about Biden and Israel. And I saw data, you probably saw it too, the New York Times uh, Siena poll showed that after the attack on October 7th to now, Biden's favorabilities, which are always dropping everywhere, but among Democrats dropped 11 points because of his strong position in support of Israel. And I was uh, talking with someone earlier today and they felt as a Democrat that Biden's support for Israel you know, his literal hugging of, of the Prime, Prime Minister Netanyahu is, an, is age-connected, that there are Democrats that are older who realize that Israel has always been our 
ally, and that's reflective. So let me just kind of throw out that incoherent jumble of thoughts. Do you have any thoughts about that, well, about you know, how this current situation will affect you go, our politics? Yeah. Uh, well, international politics is has its own impact on presidential elections. It sure. depends on what the Middle East is looking like. Uh, Biden's had kind of a uh, an interesting uh, several uh, years of experience in foreign politics. The Afghanistan withdrawal. Uh, was seen by many as a faux pas. Mm -hmm. um, his position with Israel and being supportive of Israel um, is really a throwback to past administrations. It's the you're right. It's the younger Democrats, particularly, that are saying, "Well, why are we supporting them?" And there's a lot of conversation about the atrocities that occur in any war. Guess what? It's not. There's going to be lives lost. Uh, the conversation today was going into the tunnels uh, that Hamas has built in the mm -hmm. Gaza area and how to, some are built under hospitals on purpose so that it's hard for anybody to get to them. Um, if there's a will, there's a way mm -hmm. and it won't be pretty. Um, but along the way, um, there's, there's a, there seems to be in the last month, a new element portraying the other side viewpoint of, of a, against Israel in a different light that we, I haven't seen in the past. Mm -hmm. Um, there was a group, as you recall, called BIPAC. That was a bipartisan group of Republicans and Democrats that would educate Americans and politicians and office holders about why Israel should be supported. Um, and that viewpoint seems to be waning a little bit. There, there seems to be a little struggle, particularly on the Democrat side, right, uh, about what we should do about Israel. And I, we're going to have to watch this and see how it plays out. It'll be interesting. Yeah, about half. I, the, this other polling showed the Democrats are half in support of the Palestinian people and half in support of Israel. And of course, it's not an either-or, but it kind of is an either-or uh, in in this situation. So it's just, it's you know, every week there's a new... Uh, I do winners and losers, you know, on the radio every Friday morning, and Biden is always on the loser list, and there's always a new poll about how he's, he's, uh, uh, he's dropping. Um, well, let's talk about... Okay. Presidential job approval. That okay. could be our segue into talking about the upcoming presidential race. Okay. Um, when you when you look at presidential job approval ratings, uh, and you look at Bill Clinton, or George W. Bush, or Barack Obama, all three of those presidents in October of their reelection year had job approvals over fifty percent. Trump didn't have that when he ran for re-election in 20. Biden right now is looking a lot like Trump did. He's down in the 40s. And one of the things I know the Trump team was very much uh, in emphasis of was trying to get Trump's job approval back closer to 50%. From the very first year of his administration, he started out at 48, and by the end of the year was around 40. And it was a problem mm -hmm. because it's hard to get re-elected if your job approval rating is below 50%. That doesn't go for every office. I'm just talking about the office of the president of the United States. Right. And so um, Biden is is in deep trouble. Mm -hmm. And I can see why every week another name comes out and asks him to please not run for re-election. Yes. And we don't even know how often Dr. Bennett, Dr. Uh, Biden is asking him not to run. <laughs> we don't know. So... 
talk a little bit about, so we've talked about the age gap a little bit. And are Democrats, I mean, let's do the basic, are Democrats younger than Republicans? Younger, let's say it this way, um, younger voters lean more Democratic okay. than they do Republican. Older voters lean more Republican than they do Democratic. And we can see that from exit polls. Uh, we have it in our polling. Every election cycle uh, for governor and lieutenant governor, I have between four and 6,000 interviews conducted in the last month of the election. Usually 250 interviews per night, sometimes more. And you can see these patterns, and they're as prevalent now as they have or have been mm -hmm. with the younger voters, particularly over the last four and six years, voting more Democratic. Uh, what about women? Females um, have changed. I mentioned this a little bit a moment ago, um, but female voters under the age of 55, uh, female voters in urban suburban Texas and female independents have, uh, have a less positive view of the Republican Party than they have in two, since 2010. I, I looked at 2010, 2018, and 2022. And they have they have uh, lost about 15 points in their favorability view of the Republican Party. Um, their negative view of the Republican Party has increased 15 points. And at the same time, the Democrat Party views that these same voters hold increased usually between two and five points more positive, and the negatives have decreased a little bit. And, well, can, I, and that's have, just a view of the party. Have you looked at why? I mean, like we what? haven't studied enough as to why. Okay. Right. Um, uh, we ask what they're voting for, what they what they agree or disagree about, what they uh, where they stand on certain issues, but we don't always ask them why. Uh huh. And more work needs to be done in that area. Yeah. Um, there's been a conversation about the impact of abortion in the most recent election that took place earlier this week, and of course Ohio passed um, their own. Uh, uh, pro view of uh, pro abortion right to abortion right to abortion there the conversation in the press has been has that filtered over into the democrats taking control of the state house in virginia increasing their seats in the assembly and the legislature in new jersey mm -hmm. which also had odd year elections um kentucky uh, democrats the, elected governor of kentucky got reelected in a big red state right and so what's happening and so I haven't seen enough information to tell me why. Mm -hmm. I don't know what else was discussed in those races. Um, I doubt that Republican and Democrat candidates running for uh, governor in Kentucky spoke exclusively about women's rights or abortion or pro-life or any of that, however you want to uh, phrase it. Mm -hmm. uh, usually it's, voters aren't single issue voters. But but we do have the, the there does look like there's a pattern here. This was the eighth vote like this statewide referendum that uh, that pro-abortion advocates have won since the Dobbs decision. So we do have that trend. But you know, as you say, we don't know we don't know what exactly because we know the numbers in support uh, uh, and, and in opposition to abortion, they don't follow those patterns. Yeah. Well, we have to also ask the question about where that stands on the spectrum of other issues. Right. We, You and I were talking just the other day about when did border security and illegal immigration become a, an issue on the map in Texas? 
And I might have—I don't know if I sent you this. I, oh, I did. you did, yes, uh, that, with the arrow. We were looking between 2002 and 2006. I had to go back to there because in 2002, when we'd ask which of these issues impacts your family the most or the legislature should work on the most, we didn't even include border security or illegal immigration in 2002. In 2006, we started incorporating it into the list. Mm-hmm. Um, Rick Perry, when I look back at his message survey work that we conducted on his behalf of his campaign in 2002, didn't even test a position on border security in 2002. By 2006, we tested three or four different elements of where he was on border security, along with the economy and other issues, education. And so the, the, the real sea change on that issue took place in about 20 years ago. We now seen in the last year, going on a year and a half, a new emphasis on a woman's right to choose an abortion. Mm-hmm. This is a Supreme Court decision. Where will it go from here? This next election will tell us more about that. It's like everything else in politics. The only relevant question is compared to what? <laughs> when we used to get lost in uh, physics four at that academic university I went to called Drexel, uh, uh, we had a, a gentleman who was our TA who, uh, he, it was a hard subject anyway, when we're talking physics four and relativity. And, and in his very uh, heavy foreign accent, it was hard to understand it, whatever he was saying. So we'd get lost, and we, we learned the one thing that he would say, everything is relative. You know, you're on Earth, a spaceship is up in the outer space, it's passing over at this speed relative to how far are you moving relative to that spaceship? <laughs> what? <laughs> everything is relative. We would, we'd all just start chanting when we got lost. Everything is relative, and you're right. <laughs> Everything is relative. But what is really relative is uh, is the political environment at the time of the election. Looking at this last election and look at how resources were expended by, let's say, Greg Abbott, Beto O'Rourke. And you look at 11-point Abbott victory over Beto O'Rourke. And then you look at Patrick spending less but a significant amount of money um, uh, compared to Ken Paxton. There's not that much difference between Abbott's 11-point victory, right, and 10 points for Patrick and 9 points for Paxson, but they spent wildly different sums of money. Mm-hmm. The political environment is going to be more important moving forward because you and I grew up in an era where you bought TV ads for the three broadcast stations and that was it. And then TBS and CNN News and things popped up and you had 20 cable stations and then 120 cable stations. Now TV's a whole lot different. Right. We ask a question, where do you get your main TV signal or how do you watch TV programming? And uh, what is taken over as the majority set of responses is streaming TV. The lowest, um, it used to be just we'd ask between cable and satellite. Satellites at the bottom, cables above that. But then we have two types of streaming, commercial supported streaming and no commercials. And they're, they're just, that's where the viewers are, and particularly those under the age of 50. And, and I'm not going to let us digress onto the settlement of the actor strike today, which apparently was entirely controlled by Netflix. But I, because I, I think it's important before we end here, talk a little, little bit about, you know, Texas Public Policy Foundation, our priority this year was to finally, after 35 years since our founding, to pass school choice. And when I, when I came here and sat down with my colleagues and we kind of began to look at this issue, uh, some of my younger colleagues said, you know, 
We've got we've got the polling on this issue. The majority of Texans support school choice. As long as I've been at tables, a majority of Texans have supported school choice. Yeah. So where's the disconnect? <laughs> so where's so where's the disconnect? Okay. How did that? And you've you've done a lot of that polling over the years. One of the first surveys I did statewide in the '99 election cycle, my uh, it was uh, it was on school choice, mm -hmm. and uh, I remember Mike Crusey. Uh, was a big proponent of it. He was, he was a, a lawmaker state, from here, state rep from Round Rock, and Rick Perry was lieutenant governor, and there was a lot of support for it. But it, you know, like past sessions, it didn't go anywhere. Well, why? There's several reasons we can talk about. Um, there's a disconnect between the way voters feel about the issue and their elected officials. Um, Sixty-five percent of voters support allowing the tax dollars that go for a child's education to go to the parent so the parent can use that money to decide if it should be allocated for that child's education at a public, private, or parochial school, right. or even homeschooling. 75% uh, of urban-suburban Republicans support that. 71% of rural Republicans support that. There are some rural Republicans who hear a lot of information coming from some of the largest employers in their districts, and those are the public schools. Mm -hmm. But they are disconnected with their voters who support this. Let's look at Democrats and minority voters. 60% of Anglos in the state of Texas support what I was just saying about letting the tax dollars be used by the parent for the school that they're, they're choosing. 70% of African Americans and 70% of Hispanic Latino voters support the same thing. But yet they're represented maybe by African American, usually and Latino uh, office holders in the state legislature who aren't supportive of this. Mm -hmm. So they're not following their constituencies either. Mm -hmm. it's a so it's a, a battle of special educational interests. Well, hopefully we're going to have a historic, we thought we we're going to have the historic vote today. Now it looks like we'll have the historic vote on Monday, but it, it's interesting to bring that into a line. I have a couple more questions before we close out. You know, people frequently say to me, because I've always, as long as I've been in politics, I have always followed the data. Uh, that's how I work in messaging. I want to know what the polling says. You know, people say they go with their gut. My gut can only be informed by the people that I talk to. So I really need to see the data. What do you say to people who say, well, you know, you can make a poll say anything you want? You can. Absolutely you can. How you word the question makes a big difference. No doubt about it. Little things make a difference. When we were working on the uh, deregulation of the electric companies in Texas uh, back in, was that 99? Mm -hmm. Was it 99? Or two, 99 or 2001, I can't remember the year. Um, we play with the words restructuring the electric industry and deregulating it. And we used the, the two words in split samples and we found out restructuring was three points more favorable towards the effort. Explain what a split sample is. Split sample is, let's say you have a thousand interviews. Uh-huh. Do you favor or oppose restructuring the electric industry in Texas? Would go to 500 respondents. The other 500 respondents would receive, do you favor or oppose uh, deregulating mm -hmm. the electric industry? And so you learn, wherever you use these words, you split samples so that half the respondents get one word or phrase and half get the other. And restructuring was worth three points more support. Mm -hmm. um, that's, a, that's a tighter example. But certainly, how we word questions makes a very large difference. You can, you can provide information as a preamble and say, um, uh, 
in the upcoming race for for state legislature, um, the independent candidate, we'll pick an independent candidate, the third party candidate, uh, uh, was previously uh, uh, serving 17 years for kicking puppies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, after uh, he burned this puppy mill to the ground. <laughs> now, in the upcoming race for state legislature, would you vote for Sherry Jones, Republican, Freddie the Puppy Kicker, Independent, or Max Amelian, the Democrat? Mm-hmm. Well, guess what? The Puppy Kicker, Independent, is not going to get many votes mm-hmm. because you set it up with a statement about his record. What you and I would do is let's get an initial ballot read first Mm -hmm. and everything up to that initial ballot the name ids the demographic questions the ideology is all very straightforward after you get through an initial ballot you can we always test information we test it on issues the positive and negative of these candidates and see what happens and simulate a campaign over the phone and then learn how people react to different treatments Mm -hmm. and then make our communications based on that so last question polling has been kicked around a lot in the last, since the Trump election, I think people oh. missed that. And then 2020, people missed that. What do you say to that? I mean, but it does seem to me like people are still polling all the time. Tune in to my talk that I gave about the 2016 election on C-SPAN. <laughs> Not tune in, it's somewhere out there in the, in, 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 in the deep backspace. In, in, in the interwebs. In the interwebs, in the Googles. Um, I gave a talk that C-SPAN actually covered, and they had all my charts. And mm-hmm. I showed how the 2016 election um, was more accurate than inaccurate. The narrative. The, po- the polling. The polling. The polling. The polling on the election was very accurate. Only really Iowa and Ohio were off the mark. They were outside the margin of error. All the other states were well within the margin of error. Mm-hmm. And so the narrative was wrong because the narrative going into the election was that by 70 to 85% likelihood, Hillary Clinton would win. And when it didn't happen, you know, they just said, well, and it was true in a way that if you looked at the battleground states, Trump had to win, like, I think it was 11 out of 15 battleground states. And if you flip the coin, the odds of that happened were pretty tight. It wasn't very good. But um, uh, the narrative was wrong. 2020, the same two states were the most off. I don't know what's going on with public polling in Ohio and Iowa that they can't get it more accurate, but the the polling was accurate. Go back and look at it. We can have another conversation someday about it and present it all. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the difference between the way people want to see the world and the way the world actually uh, was reacting at the time. And the way that voters were reacting across the country showed it was going to be a close race and there was opportunities for Trump to win. Think it's going to be close to next time, or is there any? We've never in our history had a former president try to be renominated, and and we've had Roosevelt win, but, but yeah, but you had um, but he he Grover switched Cleveland, parties. I think, yeah, right? Yeah. He he had a split term type yeah. of thing. Uh, it is different, and I'll give you the uh, final answer. Will be it depends. Uh, <laughs> right? A lawyer's answer it depends who the nominees are. Right, because if you had Biden and and Trump who have higher negatives than positives. It would be the second time that that really took place uh, long before the election. Because when you go, went into 2016 and looked at the condition of the candidates' images, uh, Trump was slightly over 60% negative and Hillary Clinton was in the high 50s negative. Usually, when you looked at past elections like, like Obama defeating 
John McCain. He was like 50 positive. Obama was 45 negative, And McCain was about 45 positive, 50 negative. Uh -huh. So one was just above one to one. The other one was just below one to one. If you had a Trump and Biden, you would be looking at a situation where it was more similar to 2016. And who knows what would happen? Yeah. Everybody in the country hates one of them. Yeah. I mean, you know, one one or the other. And and voters are pretty clear about the way they feel about the, the candidates. It's yeah. this far out. Right. Well, it's going to be fun to watch. Mike, thanks for coming by to Ninth in Congress. And thank you all for joining us today. You can find this podcast at Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow me on Twitter at Sylvester1630. If you'd like to receive the Ninth in Congress newsletter, you can sign up at the TPPF website, www.texaspolicy.com.